morning was an idea that was brewing from the beginning of the week. Uh, for those of you who I'm sure, I can't imagine, unless you were living in a rock somewhere in a, in a cave somewhere, that you wouldn't have heard at least pieces of it. I personally did not see the entire thing. I didn't want to. But I wanted to share some ideas that I think come out from it. What it is was the interview that Oprah Winfrey had with um, the royals in exile, their Hollywood-like Elba that they're living in, in the sunny hills of Los Angeles. Perhaps the least redeeming element of the interview that both um, Harry and Meghan had with Oprah Winfrey, the least redeeming element, as someone noted, was the image of multimillionaires fighting with the billionaire. That having been said, that having been said, the appeal that the royal family has in a broader context of human life lays bare, I think, something which is not ideal within us. In other words, when we look, and certainly with some degree of fascination, with the lives, the trials and tribulations, and the exotic nature of royalty, it reminds us with some allure that there are people who exist in the world who don't have to work for anything they have. That they get what they have merely by measure and by nature of who they are born to. And so you're brought into this world and you're brought into a life that is overwhelmed with luxury and with a tendency to it. And that there's absolutely nothing you have to do to earn it other than you have to continue breathing. Now, this idea of royalty and the allure of it, there's actually a fancy name for it. It's called, and you're going to be tested on this at the end, it's called primogenitorism. It's a great icebreaker at a bar. We don't go to bars anymore. But at the Passover city, you can feel free to use it because the Egyptians were kind of champions of primogenitorism. Primogenitorism basically says that how you were born determines how you live. And so according to primogenitorism, the firstborn of the family was primo, right? He was considered first and foremost in the pecking order of everything that would occur and unfold in the family. But primogenitorism in its deeper form, as I said to you earlier, is the argument, the idea that how you were born and who you were born to basically explains the kind of life that you will have. Biblical Judaism, emanating from this remarkable, timeless scroll of the Torah, Biblical Judaism emerged as, albeit incomplete, emerged as an argument against primogenitorism. Judaism, in its broader form as we understand it today, is a rejection of primogenitorism. Judaism is the idea, both written large and written small, of how the things that we get to in our life and the people that we become. But before we get to that, I want to share an idea with you. The idea emanates from the very beginning of the scroll, in fact, long before it, in ancient Mesopotamia, one of the earliest empires of human civilization, the Mesopotamians roughly lived and ruled at the same time as the Egyptians did. The Egyptians created a picture-based written language called hieroglyphics. At the very same time, 
the Mesopotamians developed their own kind of written symbol language called cuneiform. It's interesting to note that at the same time that the Egyptians were developing their, their written system and the Mesopotamians were developing their written system, the Chinese were developing their written system as well. It was exploding all around the world. But the thing is, with the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, the only people who could read their writing systems were the elite of society. Because their writing systems weren't like our writing systems. It wasn't like an A, B, and C, and D, where you could decode the letters and the words together. The way that they wrote their picture symbols, they were like codes. It was like Morse code. And only people who were intensely schooled in reading it and writing it, did they have any chance of understanding what was being written. In short, the history, religious texts, legal texts of those societies were only intended for a very small fraction of their people to read and understand it. One of the groundbreaking elements that Judaism brought to the world, that the Torah introduced to humanity, was the universality of access to religious, legal, and social texts. Because what's written inside of this scroll are not picture languages that you have to go to school and become a master to. The rebus principle of learning how to read and speak emerges first in the Torah. It teaches us that the ideas that the Torah speaks about, and yes, there are laws and all cultural ideas and religious ideas, but beneath all of that, if you lift the hood of the car in this thing, what do you see? Is that it was speaking to everybody, not just somebody. Now this idea takes itself in a different form. And that one of the Torah portions that we read this morning, the name of it is called Vayakel. For those of you who are a little bit Hebrew passionate, you'll appreciate that the word Vayakel is the same root as the word Kihila, which in Hebrew is a congregation. The Vayakel speaks about the people congregating together to build the portable tabernacle, the synagogue that the Israelites wandered, worshipped in when they wandered the desert. But the ancient rabbis were bewildered with something. And I want to share the question with you. They were bewildered that the word vayakel, which means to congregate, that this Torah portion is named after, as the Israelites gather to celebrate and worship in this portable tabernacle, the same word for that moment is also used when the Israelites gathered to build the golden calf. And those ancient rabbis were bewildered as why would the text of the Torah use the word for congregating, for building the tabernacle and worshiping in it. In other words, worshiping God in the right way. And that same word is used when the Israelites gathered to melt their gold, to build a golden calf, which essentially was an act of idolatry, of idol worship. Everything that the Torah nearly argues against those ancient rabbis asked, how could the same word be used for both kinds of gatherings? The truth of the matter is, in English, when people are gathered together for bad things, we call that a mob. 
And when people gather together for peaceful things, we call that a congregating or a gathering. We use different words to describe and explain the intentionality between and why people gather to do certain things. But once again, those ancient rabbis asked, why do they use the same word? The intentions were different. And the ancient rabbis concluded discussion by saying, by framing it in this way, they ask, what is it better? Is it better to live in a city where everyone follows religious law to the nth degree in a punctilious fashion, but no one gets along with each other? Or is it better to live in a city filled with idol worshipers, but everyone is harmonious with one another? It's a good question. And those ancient rabbis answer, better we all long to learn how to live together and live in a city of idol worshipers. Because ultimately, that's what God wants us to do, is all of us to learn how to live together. What this idea is in short telling us and teaching us is that Jewish tradition points human life not in believing that where we come from has any measure or importance about the people that we become. What Judaism is trying to realize and teach us is that we become the people that we are as we work together with each other. That we are a collective, not a set of unique individuals, but we are built together as a people. That our lives are determined not by what, where we come from, but where we go to together. As I reflected upon that this week, as I looked at the interview, I reminded myself how distant and far the Jewish ideas from the spectacle that was playing out on the screen. That in truth, all of us are noble if we direct ourselves to noble intentions. Just a program note of sorts, and that is next week, and I hope you tune in, we will have a reflection on Israeli elections, part four. <laughs> this is a never-ending saga. It's uh, fatiguing not just to us, trust me, but to our brothers and sisters in Israel too. Uh, the Israeli elections, I think, take place in 10 days. And so uh, we'll have a chance to reflect upon some of the things that are going on in the Israeli election cycle next Shabbat. But my best and warmest wishes to you, a Shabbat Shalom, and everyone stay safe and warm.